Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. to another edition of the Omaha Bar Association Bar Talk Podcast. I am Dave Summers, Executive Director of the Omaha Bar Association, and I have here today three attorneys. Make that four attorneys. Patrick McNamara just walked in the door. Patrick McNamara of McNamara Law Group. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Jordan Holst of Ellick Jones. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. Joe Bradley, our fearless host. Bradley Law Firm, hello. Well, hello, Dave. And last but not least, Jeremy Elliott of Hopman O'Brien, hello. Hello, Dave. Well, we are sitting around the fire, crackling fireplace here at Bradley Law Firm. <laughs> the weather has turned to sub-zero temperatures, and we are ready to talk about some holiday topics today. We have on the agenda for you, we're going to talk about return policies on packages um, purchased for the holiday season. We're also going to get into a more serious topic of having to spend time with your parents, and we'll get into that a little bit more, but that's the the general topic. And the third and final topic, we're going to give gifts to one another here. Not in the usual sense of gift giving, but we are going to give to each other two of our favorite cases of all time any level, whatever we love to talk about as attorneys, to other attorneys, those cases that just get us. And we will give that gift to each other and to the listeners of this podcast. So getting into our first topic here, it's the holiday season. I'm already on Amazon looking at getting gifts for my family, for my friends. And I have to tell you, I am worried that if I don't get the right thing, I'm going to miss those return policies. I might get them something and they are not going to be able to return it. And so I've, I've been wondering what you all have found out since we put this subject to the panel about the return policy out there and, and what the law is on it. Because I see, I see all over the place. I see different return policies. I see companies not accepting returns. I see only store credit. I see full returns. And I gotta say, I'm I'm thinking I should go shop at Nordstrom, which has accordingly the best policy for returning, just because I can <coughs> anything get returned. Um, my mom would love that. Thanks, mom, for listening to this podcast and for always shopping at Nordstrom. Um, but yeah, let's let's go around the table here and uh, what do you, what do you guys have on return policies during the holiday season? A, a wide open question, Patrick. You're well, looking guess, at me with, with bright eyes. Well, I guess first, what, what happens when we're purchasing something? It's, it's a contract with the, the retailer to, to purchase it. Um, and because you're purchasing a, a good or a product, I guess it would be governed under the UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code. I don't really know what that means, but I do know. <laughs> <laughs> Skimming the surface. But I do know. <laughs> <laughs> But I do know that that would probably have something to do with your legal remedies uh, if, if something were to go wrong. But for the most part, you're in an agreement with the retailer and whatever their policy says probably goes. So be aware and be educated on, on the, the retailers you're working with. Well, Dave, I, I've heard a saying that possession is nine-tenths of the law. And this makes me wonder, when does title pass to these objects that we we buy clearly if you go to target and buy something you know as soon as you pay for it you know and you walk out the store with it it's yours why would you be able just to go return it once you have purchased it and that also makes me wonder when you buy something online aka amazon when does title pass in that situation is it when it leaves the amazon warehouse when it's sent to the amazon warehouse when fedex drops it off at your door. Anyone know? I'm pretty sure that is in the UCC, but I do not remember the answer to that. There is some rule about shipping. Free on board, <laughs> F-O-B. Yes. 
<laughs> I remember that from this contracts. is bringing all sorts of bells, guys. <laughs> yeah, we're really <laughs> we are we have all, all the legal knowledge of a slightly drunk two L right now. <laughs> well, I was just gonna say I'm pretty sure that the general rule in Nebraska, I mean, the rule is that you don't have a right to return anything. It's just dependent upon the particular retailer. That that is what I found as well in my search on findlaw.com. I will say sponsor of this podcast for anyone needing any um, perfumes or colognes or shampoos you should go to Sephora because they have an amazing return policy you can even use something take it back tell them you don't like it and they'll take it and and so okay so that's interesting because there are these different return policies and on things that clearly you've used right it's not just a certain amount of time 30 days what have you but if you are at REI and you buy shoes you can return them five years later, completely worn out, to REI. It's a lifetime warranty on the shoe, and you're like, oh, the shoe's not working anymore. There's no tread left. They, they, they take it back. I, I don't, I can't understand if, that they're legally obligated to do that, even if they say they're going to do that. That, that doesn't make sense to me. Maybe I'm not thinking like a lawyer right now. And well, I think for the most part, they're, they're not doing, they're not authorizing these, these, returns years beyond what anyone would consider reasonable uh, because they need to under the law. They're doing it for uh, the customer experience and to make people uh, want to shop at their stores and to be loyal and to recommend to well, their friends. And it's like you were saying, Dave, uh, you were mentioning Nordstrom. They have a notoriously very generous return policy. Does that give you good feelings towards them or bad feelings towards them, right? Right. And when they have the piano player downstairs just... Going, going away on the ivory. I, I want to give them all my money. Tickling and I, the ivory. I, I tickling the ivory. I do give them my money regularly when I'm in the Nordstrom's locale, which is not, not in Nebraska. No, unfortunately. Ron Moore seems to be pretty much the same experience, though. I don't know I've what the return policy is there, though. I've never purchased anything there actually. It's just really <laughs> nice to walk through on the way to the food court. The ambiance is amazing. <laughs> so. When we were talking about Nebraska and, the, and their return policy being up to the um, up to the store, I did find in some states, as is the case, um, some states being very restrictive in what they require. Um, New Jersey, for example, you have to post the return policy um, very clearly, and if you don't post it, there's a automatic 30-day window for returns. If you, so, if you didn't tell them what your policy is. Um, right up front on the front door, I think it is, they get 30 days no matter what. And there is this cooling off period, the FTC, which we love, um, and I believe have maybe talked about in the past here in the podcast, they have um, a three-day return policy under federal protections um, that if you purchase something online or from the dormitory, it literally says that on the website. What? <laughs> you... Um, or at a non-permanent location of a business, you have three days to return it. Um, uh, just no questions asked. It's it's a straight three-day return policy. Um, where most return policies are more than that, you don't think that that's a big deal, but maybe for a pop-up shop, um, that might be a big deal that has an as-is, no return policy. They actually have to require a three-day window for Returns. Now, would that cover like a garage sale? Ooh, good question. Set and spike, guys. <laughs> well, and and Jeremy, you hit on this, um, you know, and and Jordan too. The delivery of these of these packages that we're buying, right? Possession. Okay, so I, I buy stuff from Amazon. It's on my doorstep. But then I'm one of the 11 million Americans every year who has a package stolen from my doorstep. It actually happened on my block earlier this week. It happens very regularly in my <laughs> neighborhood here in Omaha. Um, and, and what happens then? Have I taken possession because it was on my left on my property and I didn't see it for the 10 minutes before it was stolen away? I think it... Uh, I, I would say yes, just because like on their website, you know, they this is clearly a problem they had before, and I've seen it where it's like, you know, you can, you can change the settings where if you're worried about that, they can only leave it with you or with a person. So it's kind of buyer beware in terms of we're we're assuming you live 
in a place where this isn't going to happen, but if you do, that's on you. Yeah, that, yeah that, that makes sense, that there are those delivery options, and you need to be reasonable in what you choose based on. Now that I am aware of the theft in my neighborhood, I need to probably pick up at FedEx if I have a package coming in for a lot of money. I actually I, have started having everything sent to my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just have it delivered to the office because it's the most feel-safe way for me to make sure that my stuff doesn't get taken. And I know under federal law, when you're having stuff delivered through the U.S. Postal Service, uh, they do automatically cover $100 um, of whatever the um, the cost is. There's there's a built-in um, insurance that's paid for by the sender. Um, so even if they're not going to cover, and even if the sender's not going to cover replacement or anything like that, you can get up to $100 um, from uh, insurance policy through the USPS. And there's I guess there's private insurance that people can purchase on each one of their orders to cover larger purchases. So maybe that's a tip for the listeners out there, Mom, when you're buying my really nice, large Christmas present, I want to get some private insurance on it. Just saying. (laughs) Um, What else in this area of returns. Do we want to talk about the nice guy return policy versus the jerk return policy? Oh. Well, Dave, as a corollary uh, to packages being stolen, Amazon recently announced in certain cities they are going to have a service in which they will drop the package off inside your door and you purchase from them this unit that allows them to use an app to open your door. There's a camera so you can see them put it in. But that raises the issue, would you feel comfortable letting a stranger open your door even if they're on video? Apparently it's going to be a thing. For non-dog owner households, I guess. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, the dog bite liability. But my thing is this, if you live in a neighborhood where you're worried about them leaving it on your front porch, probably a neighborhood where you don't want to give extra people access to your front door. <laughs> well, the thing is, from what I understand, it's a one-time code and only... Amazon in the sky can unlock it. So it's not, the delivery driver doesn't have access to the code. It is somebody back at Amazon who, when the delivery driver gets to your house, then sends a code to allow the door to open. And how could that ever get hacked? And, and when the person that's True. walking behind the delivery person is like, oh, you got to my house, thanks. So you're, oh yeah, I'll just go in. Yeah, that, that couldn't be anything. A jaded crew here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um... Anything else? Uh, nice guy return policy. N- nice guy return policy. Yeah, so legally required to be a nice guy. No, it just so, helps. So it's like if someone from New York <laughs> calls a customer service line, or someone from Nebraska, Carol. which one is more likely to? Uh, it, it's not about geography. All right, it's not geography. <laughs> if you are nice to people, they will do a lot more than they need to. And if you are not nice to people, they will do the bare minimum. That pa- Patrick, controversial subcategory here. People on the East Coast, nicer, meaner than Nebraskans. <laughs> people overall are, are the same. I, I mean, it's not about East Coast people not being nice. Is that So when it comes to me asking you about whether East Coast people are nice, would you tell me to forget about it? <laughs> yes, I, I would. Thank you. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> And, and Patrick, you've also discussed this in the past. Uh, you're a big fan of the Amex customer service when you have disputes with, with purchases made. Yeah, so American Express, in order to further uh, provide services to their, to their clients, to entice people to use their cards, to make retailers uh, be accountable and to provide good service, they will go a, a lot beyond what individual stores have as a return policy or a warranty. They'll even say if you purchase a piece of, like a, compute, a computer or some other type of consumer electronic, let's say the manufacturer puts a year-long uh, warranty on it, Amazon will pay for repairs for another year or two, or not Amazon, American Express will pay for another year or two of, of returns uh, or, or repairs on top of that just to uh, entice people to use their card to make purchases and to uh, provide a higher level of service. Um, they'll also, if, if you try to return something to a, uh, a retailer and you, you're given a hard time, Amazon will just credit you the card, uh, they'll credit you the amount you paid and 
resolve it with the retailer. Uh, so consumers can arm themselves uh, better by by no by in addition to knowing return policies, knowing the perks and protections that their uh, credit card provider provides as well. Another story about American Express, actually. So my mom has the American Express app. And so whenever she swipes her card, she literally gets a notification that her card was just used at whatever location it's and for instant. whatever. Yeah, it's it is. The second it swiped. So like two weeks ago, she had a charge come through asking if it was fraud because it was like $45,000 to some random company. I like your limits <laughs> on that card. I know. Wow. This is slightly outside of your normal spending. <laughs> not, not very much. I noticed you bought a country. <laughs> <laughs> on credit. No, but it was but it was great just how instantaneous it was, and they immediately flagged it, and they were like, okay, I'm pretty sure this isn't some random purchase you're making. So they, you know, they denied it. They sent her a new card immediately. They overnighted it to her so she would have it the next day. Yeah, it's great. So this leads me to, again, a very small detour. I did promise Jordan last time that I would come up with two truths and a lie about her mom. <laughs> I've done a little Facebook research, no helping here. We'll see if anybody can figure out the two truths and a lie on Stephanie, Jordan's mom. Um, disclaimer, a lot of her personal information is probably a lie in and of itself, so this will well, be interesting. maybe this will be three lies and a lie. <laughs> All right. Now I had to. I had to look through photos. I had to look at personal stuff. Very creepy, guys. Um, so here we go. First, Stephanie studied computer science at MIT. Stephanie is from originally Croatia. Stephanie dressed as Princess Leia within the last several Halloweens. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I'm going to have to go with three lies. Three. You say three lies? Anybody? Anybody guess? This, I'm saying only one of those is a lie. Stephanie is not from Croatia. All right, any guesses? MIT, that's a lie. The only lie was Princess Leia. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> actually, they're all lies. That's what I was trying to tell you. Guys. Yes, she, it's on her Facebook, but it's all lies. How'd she lie about that? She put know. it in her like intro. I know. That's why I, immediately info. I was like, oh shoot, because Wait, no whole... photo. Just I've pre I've dressed. Yeah, and it's like studied at MIT. Oh no, the, the Princess Leia. I just made up that one. Like that was that was phony. <laughs> that baloney. was supposed to be the lie. The other one. That was were supposed to be the lie. So page. Stephanie, she assures us you listen to this. You are a liar. <laughs> You have lied, you lie. And we all won. We all we all were correct. Everybody was right. Yes. It was all lies. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. They're all lies. I was I was most correct, but all yes. Right. Sorry guys. Sorry guys. Speaking of parents. <laughs> um, good good transition. So, so yeah, we'll cut that and it will be the speaking of parents. Um, two more quick things on the on the return policies. Uh, one thing I saw is that there is there's an effort out there to take returners, chronic returners of things, create a profile and sell that information to all the large retailers around the country so that when you come in and try to return something, they act you're actually flagged in their system as a chronic returner and they will refuse to return uh, the product, which is creepy. Mm -hmm. and has been litigated, but actually not been uh, found to be illegal. So beware out there that when you're returning, it's going to be shown to other retailers, not just that. So what harm are they trying to redress? Is it the people who literally take clothing and wear it for the weekend and bring it back in? That is correct. Um, they are called, it's called wardrobing or renting. And uh, the stance I have here consumers return $264 billion worth of merchandise every year, which is about 9% of total sales. Oh my gosh. And um, $8.9 billion a year is fraudulent, and some of that being the rental of things over the weekend. Um, others is, is probably swapping out things and trying to return things that aren't what they purchased, but looks like what they purchased. So. That is uh, th that is something out there for th those of you who love to return everything you get from your family at Christmas time. You may be flagged. 
for future returns that are legitimate. Well, so we should talk about what really the pur again what the purpose of returns are, what the purpose of retailers' relationship with consumers are, because if you're if you're just doing something that's within your rights to do, like returning something for a reason that you've been allowed given to by the retailer, why should you be penalized for that? And should should a return be considered something negative if it's part of what you purchased, your, your right to return something. I see you and Jeremy on opposite sides of this debate from what I've no, witnessed. Not so like far. returns, Jeremy. I wasn't paying attention to what Pat said. <laughs> <laughs> this well, is the best part. I was going to say, though, if, right I had two, if I had two options, the same price, the same item, but one retailer had a better return policy. I would always just buy it from them just for the comfort of knowing that if I wanted to take it back, I could. Yeah, of course. And so that's what I was going to say, kind of tying back into our discussion about Nordstrom and even REI and Sephora. People, the return policy seems ridiculous, but really what are the odds that people are going to take true advantage of it? And so they're really winning because they have people that shop there for that reason, but don't generally take advantage of the reason they shop there. It's the store equivalent of like a fringe benefit, right? Mm -hmm. You never get like, like if you're going to a law firm and, you know, they show you, oh, we've got all these great, this Keurig coffee maker and all this stuff. Like it's not, you know, it, and if you're interviewing two places and they're paying you the same, you're probably going to go to the place with more perks. So, no, I, I get it. Can I get a coffee from your amazing Keurig coffee maker? Ooh, or, no, that's that's Mr. Coffee. <laughs> he, he's, he's going to school to get his doctor. Someday he'll be Dr. Coffee, but no. You guys pull out all the stops here at Bradley Law. The perks at Bradley Law, I mean, we combine the break room, the lobby, and the kitchen all in one. It's pretty impressive. Podcast center as well. That's yes. right. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to pose a question then, oh. relating to extended warranties that retailers sell. So don't buy them. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Buy them. Just for a second. So let's say we're talking about me. Oh, I would get the extended warranty on you. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> for example, let's say I purchased uh, a Bluetooth speaker from Best Buy, and they offer an extended warranty that says within a year or two years, I forget how long, um, if there's some, some issue with this product, we'll allow you to bring it back for a store credit for the value of what you paid for it. And they don't say anything about really the reason you have to return it. They don't say that it has to be it, it has to be defective. They just say if you return it and you own this policy, we'll give you a store credit for the value of what you pay for. And for four years straight, once a year, you bring a Bluetooth speaker back for a new one and purchase a subsequent ten dollar extended warranty. <laughs> And you're acting well within the guidelines of the extent of warranty. Is there any morally, is there any moral issue to that? Is there anything wrong with doing that? There is for sure a moral issue <laughs> with that. I don't know if we can cover the the OBA morality podcast will be later, but legally, I think you're well within your rights. Okay. Hypothetically, of course. This <laughs> hypothetical. I actually have a hypothetical uh, question. Oh, here we go. So if you know, maybe you're in college and big flat screen TVs are the hot item and you really want one. You know, let's say someone goes to Best Buy and they used to have those open box discounts. Is it morally wrong to buy a TV, return it, then buy it when they put it on sale? <laughs> <laughs> That is amazing. It sounds like it. Uh, again, once again, morally wrong. <laughs> But legally fine. <laughs> and, and I have to say, when I was looking through the worst return policies out there, Best Buy is one that comes up. So it's interesting that, Patrick, you're talking about doing a, a four-year free-for-all for $40. No, this hypothetical <laughs> person I'm sorry, did. hypothetical. Well, I didn't say it's under their standard return policy. This is under their particular extended warranty on small electronics. Sure, sure. And um, and I'll, I'll take it another way, which is, Apple, which has a bad return policy, mm -hmm. you know, you, you want to return an iPod, a phone, iPad, they don't want that iPad back. They want you to keep it and they want it to work, but they don't want to take it back and return it. Um, but with their warranty system, it's incredibly beneficial to get it. And the, you, you can get a replacement uh, device for a lot less than you would if you hired, you know, if you got insurance under AT&T, Verizon, the private insurers, or if you self-insured and 
Well, a lot of times these companies are, when you buy an extended warranty or you buy Apple Care or whatever we're talking about, you're kind of buying into their little club a little bit where they want to take care of you because they, because they know that you opted to uh, purchase your way into this little club. And so you get usually even better service than what probably is, is in writing uh, if they know you've gone out of your way to purchase extra protection so like me having my iphone 10 being a part of the apple iphone upgrade oh, program get it. you've got an iphone 10 <laughs> and, and since our last podcast actually jordan and i both have new phones although mine's just an iphone 7 so i'm not clearly as cool as jordan and they don't work when it's cold outside <gasps> well i haven't had that problem yet so well it's november in nebraska so Speaking of parents, Jordan, would you like to take the second topic? Sure. So as we kind of discussed pre-podcast, you know, sometimes you kind of look for an excuse not to have to see your parents. Just kidding. Just kidding. But so in Nebraska, um, this year, actually, just this past August, there was a new law passed. Um, so the aim of this law is basically to facilitate adult children in seeing their elderly parents when a caregiver is arbitrarily denying them visitation. Um, apparently this bill got a lot of support from people. It was introduced by Senator Patty Panzing Brooks. Um, I talked to her legislative aide actually on the phone last week because I filed the first petition in Douglas County on this issue. Uh, the statutes don't really give a lot of direction in terms of the procedure and the notice required, but basically all you need to tell the court is that you are an adult child. Your parent is a resident of the county in which you're petitioning. Um, that there is a caregiver who's arbitrarily denying visitation. This person can be incapacitated, and if that's the case, you have to file it within the county where the guardianship is, but you don't have to allege incapacity. Um, if you allege in your petition that their health is in significant decline or that death is imminent, then the court is required to set an emergency hearing within 10 days after the filing of that petition. Um, as I said, the statutes don't really tell you what the petition needs to contain, so I kind of had to wing it, but it was enough for the Douglas County Court to accept. Um, one of the county court judges that I spoke with said, because of the lack of direction, the county court judges took it upon themselves to decide what the procedure was, so at this time they're following guardianship statutes. So I had the both the adult or the, the elderly parent and the caregiver personally served with notice, and then I sent um, noticed by first class mail to the siblings, so his children, um, and just filed an affidavit of mailing notice. So that's kind of how we took care of that. I think it's a really great, um, interesting tool for people because I didn't know that this was much of an issue, and then it just kind of walked through our door um, this summer. This woman has been having trouble, and this got passed into law in August, so we were able to use it instead of I don't really know what we would have done for her in the absence of this. So in this Petition. scenario, so in this scenario, what's happening is there's a nursing home or some type of facility where the parent is staying, and the administration of the nursing home is not allowing the person's children to come or child to come and see. Well, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a nursing home. So there is a, um, so the nursing home administrator can, pursuant to section seventy one sixty twenty one. Um, disallow family visitation for a reason but this is very broad and so in our particular instance it's the elderly parent is an in a care facility he's actually living with a caregiver in home and this is a woman he's known for 30 odd years they work together and so he lives with her and her husband in their home and so this statute is broad enough to cover that situation it's just any situation in which the person is a resident of the state and is receiving care by any person in either a healthcare facility, any home or other residential dwelling. So, I I'm not down in the legislature, and I haven't I haven't paid attention to when this bill went through. But are they sort of believing, in some sense, that this is going to alleviate the situation? That nobody, I mean, you had to go through it. You had to legally petition. But are they thinking that this will, once it's disseminated, will stop this from happening, and it won't? come through the courts as much, but people will understand it and they will allow that visitation to take place more regularly than they would otherwise? Is that kind of what it's all about? I would think so. And actually, if you turn down, you don't have to turn for those at home, but um, 
<laughs> Chapter 42, 1304. For those of you following this at home. <laughs> so, um, if the, the caregiver is no late, knowingly isolating the resident from visitation, then either the court on its own motion or the petitioner can ask for court costs and attorney's fees. And so this person will have to pay court costs and attorney's fees, presumably, if they are knowingly isolating the adult children from their parent. And I think that I'm not that surprised, actually, in retrospect, that this has come about just because the guardianship laws were revamped um, within the last couple of years to really combat elder abuse. So this seems to be another good way to ensure that the elderly are not being taken advantage of. Call me Scrooge. But I think this statute is overly broad and ripe for abuse. Oh, if you look at section 42.1301, uh, subsection 3, resident means an adult resident of subsection B, any home or other residential dwelling in which the resident is receiving care and services from any person. So I'm just looking at the statute, and I, I think you've got a husband and wife. Let's say one is incapacitated the spouse providing care to the other spouse, this statute would allow the state to issue a court order for any relative to basically come over. That's how I read it. And that, I mean, well, and is, is it a right to have that access to your parent? That that seems like something we haven't talked well, about before. Right? And well, it, and, well, then my question on that is, does that cover, like, let's say they're in, like, a hospital facility. Does that include... Can they go see them anytime? Are they limited to hospital visiting hours? Are they allowed to enter that facility at their own leisure? Not That's not my reading of it. Um, and first of all, this is only a vehicle for adult children, which they don't limit to adult children by bloodline. It can be um, either biological relation through adoption, through marriage or former marriage. Um, so it's children or people for all intents and purposes that are children of this adult person. And I'd just like to note too that um, the court doesn't have to compel this visitation. So they basically cannot issue an order if they find that a resident that has capacity um, expresses a desire to not have visitation with that adult child. They can't compel the caregiver to make that person visit with their child. Or um, that the visitation between the petitioner and the resident is not in the best interest of that resident. So in the incapacity situation, uh, the example you gave, Jeremy, where it's a husband and wife and one of them is incapacitated, if the court finds that it's not in their best interest, they won't order it. But I think the, the crux of this issue is whether or not we have an arbitrary denial of visitation to an adult person by, or they're not, you know, their adult child is not allowed to see them. So I think that the issue is that we care in this state a lot about undue influence and people attempting to kind of take the place of others adult children in their wills and whatnot and so I think that that is the reason for these statutes. I agree with the reason I, I guess I also agree with Jeremy that it's probably gonna get rewritten um, to, to be a little bit more narrowly focused um, given maybe our conversation here and how it could be applied that's just my opinion. Jordan with your in-depth knowledge of the statute now uh, is there any particular amendments that you would propose or changes that you would think would either clarify or, or strengthen or make the statute work better than it currently appears to be? Maybe putting a procedure down or? Definitely, I think that there needs to be more of a procedure set in place for um, even what they would like to see in the petitions, what all needs to be alleged, and for notice to parties because, like I said, we're at least in the Douglas County Court, we're just borrowing from the guardianship notices, which this is not, I mean, this isn't necessarily akin to a guardianship. They stuck it in the probate court, and I think that the probate court judges feel that this might be more proper in civil court, but then I talked to Senator Pansing Brooks' legislative aide who said they initially were trying to get it heard in the district court, which kind of makes sense to me because that's where you would hear child support and or child custody issues. So this seems to me to be a lot like a custody visitation issue. So I imagine that when we go to court, the type of order I'm going to have to submit would be something close to some sort of a visitation schedule for between a parent and a child and a juvenile child parent relationship. Dave, you mentioned a minute ago uh, about whether there's a right to see your uh, elderly parent about, you know, because we have the standard for parental involvement. And again, I know family law at all. 
but it appears to be best interests of the child, and then they look at like fundamental importance of like me having parents around. But I mean, does anyone know is there a right to for an adult child or an adult to uh, see their elderly parent or have a, have a right in in society legally to see a parent? I don't think so. Well, does this come from What's the focus here? Allowing children to see their elderly parent, or is it to make sure again that that elderly parents aren't being taken advantage it, of? And to clarify, I think so. Does this statute apply to family members, which it further defines as spouse, adult child, adult grandchild, parent, grandparent, sibling, aunt, uncle, niece, nephew, cousin, or domestic partner of a resident? Right, you're right. It does apply to those as well. So, so it's, it's family member is a broader Uncle definition Bob than can I. Come to Thanksgiving. And I understand um, the revamping of the guardianship, um, conservatorship in Nebraska really was all about getting a handle on elder abuse. And I can see this being a protection on elder abuse. Um, so I think that's where the heart of it was, and I appreciate that. And there's certainly something to be said for. Uh, if if the kids can't get access to the parent and see what's going on, then there's more chance that there could be that abuse out there, and we really don't want that um, on different levels, on on abusive funds that the state is paying those facilities uh, for sub subpar uh, care, and also for the rights of the incapacitated person who's trying to receive that care. So, if everybody's all right, I will lift our spirits with a little gift giving. I, I, I enjoy the gift-giving season so much, I really do, and to me, nothing puts a smile on my face more than sitting down with my fellow attorneys and turning to Patrick on my right and saying, my favorite legal case of all time, my gift to you, is the Bobby Bonilla. <laughs> Bobby Bonilla. Yeah. Bobby Bonilla. That was a person. Is the, <laughs> still is. So, <laughs> is Bobby's the, alive, guys. Bobby Bonilla. Mets compensation contracts from the 2000 season, I believe. Yes, the 2000 season. Now, Bobby Bonilla was playing for the Mets at the time, and the Mets wanted to drop him as quickly as possible. They did not want to pay him the remainder of his contract as it was already written, which would have hamstrung, hamstrung them in many different ways. So they agreed to do a deferred payment and instead of the $5.9 million, $5 million that they owed him, they decided that over a period of time from 2011 to 2035, they would pay him $1.19 million a year. So to date, he's collected $8,350,000 and he's still owed $29 he, he will be he, <laughs> totally compensated totally compensated 29.8 million dollars for the 5.9 million dollars that they didn't want to pay him back in 2000 and I love this because it shows creativity in sports law and those contracts um, I think this is the beginning of really good um, contract formation among professional sports teams I really do think that but it's hilarious at the same time. And I know, Patrick, you want to defend the Mets, Los Mets, and their decision to pay him $29 million instead of $5.9 million. Well, I don't want to defend the Mets. <laughs> I maybe could qualify the decision Please. partly. Well, first of all, it probably wasn't even worth $5.9 million. Uh, I guess that's why they wanted shots to fired, shots fired. Uh, mediocre baseball player at best. Anyway, he, was, he left his talents in Pittsburgh. Bobby, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry that Patrick is not defending your Bobby, talents. friend of the show. <laughs> we have to have him on the line. Bobby, your thoughts on this? <laughs> no, so, all right, first of all, I don't know anything about time value of money, but I guess they figured over time they probably had some, uh, what they call actuaries, go through and figure out maybe there was some value. But the big reason that they thought that this was a wide, wise move was because the Mets were bringing in all those Madoff returns. Lots and lots of Madoff returns. That's the reason that we have a brand new ballpark that probably still isn't paid for. Uh, it's the reason that the Mets 
thought they were going to have probably a dynasty over the past couple decades. But anyway, they thought they were going to have these guaranteed returns coming in in perpetuity and that those Bonilla dollars would be a drop in the bucket compared to how they were doing. And they probably just wanted to, I don't know, save $5.9 million. And, and it's built in 8% interest rate, um, just the, the base. That. So they, they were thinking they were getting more than 8% um, in the returns on the Madoff money, which obviously was a pyramid scheme that dried up. Um, and the fun fact, the second fun fact, and I just love sports law, so this is a drop in the bucket. Patrick and I will be getting this in detail in a separate podcast, so listeners, be ready for that. Woo! But the Mets, they also owe him on another contract with the Orioles. The Orioles and the Mets together owe him, let me get this right, <laughs> they paid him $15.3 million in deferred money, and they owe him $27 million more for three other seasons that they didn't want to pay him up front. So this dude is cashing in so much money in his retirement. He's 54 years old, and he's making every year $3 million. He's down in Florida, no income tax. He's making so much money in retirement, more than he, well, almost the same as he made when he was a player. It's amazing. Bobby Bonilla is the smartest non-playing baseball player ever. Absolutely. Hands down. Do we need to do another podcast on this? You we may, may, maybe, maybe don't need to talk about this thing. part of the Mets anymore, but we do need to do a podcast. So I will not let you get off the Is there anything other than the Mets that we can talk about? Yeah, let's let's open up. You guys, what, what are your favorite cases out there? What are your gifts to us? Throw it out there. Well, Dave, recently, um, I would like to give everyone a lawyer dog. I'm sorry, what? What? A lawyer dog. <laughs> uh, please explain. <laughs> Recently, in early November, the Louisiana Supreme Court ruled that a young 22-year-old man who was being interrogated for the second time did not invoke his constitutional right to counsel when he asked for a lawyer dog. The court actually specifically held that he was asking for a dog who happened to be a lawyer. <laughs> I wasn't aware there were lawyer dogs, but apparently in Louisiana. Well, no, we have one. We have one right here in the state. Anybody that's ever been in Judge Johnson's courtroom knows that Finnegan Johnson, licensed lawyer dog. <laughs> and I believe a second lawyer dog can be found in Judge Randall's court these days. I think that. And his name, also Finnegan, strangely enough. That's, I think it's actually, it's like um, the honorable for, for humans. It's just Finnegan is the first name for any lawyer dogs, but subtopic. I mean, it's, to, to me, it's, it brings back all the fun arguments over the Oxford comma. It's, you know, lawyer comma dog or lawyer dog. And, and, the, and the unfun view, view of this case, what a just racist, horrible thing that those cops did like that's just the worst well because if he's asking verbally how is he i mean i'd like to hear his intonation when he said it because there's no way for him to physically insert a comma well yeah, unless well, he goes, well well lawyer dog finger quotes <laughs> <laughs> oh we got it on the take jerry while you're while you're looking for that i mean i would jump in and just say that what's up what, do, what up dog yeah what up? right no exactly. comma dog <laughs> The right to counsel is something that's so important that if it even looks like you're asking for it, it to me, it should be considered asked for. Quote, this is what was said. <clears throat> this is how I feel. If y'all think I did it, I know I didn't do it. So why don't you just give me a lawyer, dog? Because this is not what's up. Does that provide more context? It does, but again, I want to. I mean, I'm sure his intonation was Could some the cop sort have of. Asked, are you asking for right? Well, and I agree that I think that he shouldn't have to say it in a specific way. There's no magic words to request an attorney. I think that you don't strictly construe their words. I would, I would believe this lawyer, this 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 cop's interpretation. If you could point out to me one lawyer dog that has ever existed, <laughs> ever, like, God, that sucks. Yep. And, and so didn't the Supreme Court upheld that he didn't uphold that he didn't ask for a lawyer? The Supreme Court ruled this. It wasn't just the cops. The Supreme Court ruled he was asking for a lawyer dog. 
just this, awful. This animals. gets into Jesus. This gets into <laughs> the lexicon of Louisiana dialects and understanding the Cajuns down there and their understanding of the English language. I believe, correct? The, fr- the, fr- the French English <laughs> translations. Slow your dog. All right. Uh, any- anyone else have a favorite? Is uh, Professor Finner on the phone? <laughs> oh, uh, he hung up. He- he's in Rome, actually, and, and the time change, he hung up. So. Well, guys, I came with my two favorite cases. Now, the first one is serious. And the second one is silly to bring it back around. Uh, first case, and the most appropriately named in my first case, uh, turned 50 years old this year, Loving v. Virginia. It is the case that officially banned, uh, that got rid of the banning of uh, intramural racism. Uh, in, <laughs> <sorry. laughs> intramural racism? It's, it's the, so it turned 50 years old this year. It's the case that got rid of the ban against interracial marriage. Uh, this is close to home for me because I have uh, an interracial family and it's uh, it's just bonkers that just 50 years ago it would have literally been something that would have put me in jail for a year to even contemplate. So it's uh, this was a case for those that don't know. Merrill Loving, uh, a black woman, was married to uh, Richard Loving, a white man. They lived in Virginia. Uh, the cops, uh, when they they'd heard whispers that they, 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 they left the state to get married where it was legal and then came back, the cops busted in, hoping to, quote, find them in the sex act so they could catch them red-handed. But unfortunately, it was the middle of the night and they were sleeping like two normal people in a bed. Uh, they took the case all the way to the Supremes, and uh, this, this really helped a lot of people. It makes me very happy. Movie reference, I actually went to see um, the movie, mm-hmm. which I think is Loving View Virginia or something of that sort. It just came out this last year, last yes. Christmas is when I saw it. Um, it's it's a very dramatic, good movie. Um, it's just I, called the film is called Loving. Loving, yeah. I, I'd recommend that to anybody who would like to uh, see this uh, case in action. Yeah. And of course, my my sillier case is the case we all remember. And this case turns, let's see, it turns thirteen years old this year. We all remember where we were when we heard about the case of Alien v. Predator back in two thousand four. <laughs> Um, now, not a lot of us always remember who won that case. Uh, at the very end, the protagonist, Alexa, as we all remember, uh, was fighting alongside the predator, who I believe was named Scar, against the queen alien on the edge of the ice cliff in Antarctica. They were able to shove the ice queen off. She fell to her death, unfortunately not before impaling Scar with her tail, killing Scar. The predator ship, of course, then showed up, uh, gave, a, uh, gave a spear to the human as thanks, and then when everybody left, unfortunately, you see an alien bust out of the dead Scar's chest. So who won that case? TBD, guys. <laughs> Always a sequel. <laughs> you got anything? I do. Um, so my favorite case is more because of what came after, and I love the <clears throat> kind of the intersection of the law and technology and kind of what we're doing right now. So it's the Adnan Syed case out of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, <laughs> If you guys have listened to Serial, it's a very good podcast. Sarah Koenig narrates it. It was some investigative reporting she did on it. She was approached by Rabia Shadri, who is a family friend of the Syeds, who is also an attorney. So Serial just kind of follows um, the story that was told, and Sarah goes and, you know, she talks to Anand, she tells his story, and then comes Undisclosed, which I don't know if any of you have listened to that podcast, but it is phenomenal. Um, it's Rabia Chaudhry, Susan Simpson, and Colin Miller, I believe is his last name. He's a professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law. They did an insanely in-depth podcast. They actually uncovered five key facts in the case that led to Anand's conviction being set aside. The judge ordered a new trial. Um, the state is appealing the order of a new trial, but and he's still sitting in jail because his request for bail was denied. But they're getting there. So what was interesting is that the the state's key witness, Jay Wilds, um, told his story. He, he said that he helped Adnan Barry Heyman Lee, which was Adnan's ex-girlfriend. Uh, he reported that she was crumpled up in the trunk. And one of the, one of the key pieces that came out of this um, investigation by the Undisclosed team was that the lividity, which is 
the way that the blood kind of coagulates in your body after you die was not consistent with the story. And so essentially he had reported that she was put immediately in her trunk, was left there for four or five hours before they buried her on her side in the seven o'clock hour. And when in reality, the lividity showed that she had been lying face down for at least eight to 12 hours before she was put on her side. So the lividity evidence was not consistent with Jay's story. Um, there was also one of the witnesses who put Heyman Lee at the school until close to three o'clock had said that she remembered talking to her before a wrestling match and the undisclosed team uncovered that there was actually no wrestling match that day that they had, I think it was Randallstown was who they had a wrestling match against and that had actually been the week prior. So another key fact, um, they, the state made a big deal of the cell phone tower evidence and so they they were, were able to show that there were these pings made when people made calls and that placed Adnan's cell phone close to Lincoln Park, which is where they found Heyman Lee. Um, and just to kind of go back a little bit, so Christina Gutierrez was the initial defense counsel for Adnan, um, and basically in order to appeal his conviction, he alleged that she was ineffective in her assistance of him. And one of the allegations was that she didn't combat this cell phone tower evidence in a way that she should have, and the undisclosed team actually found this cover sheet that was sent by AT&T that said the pings are accurate only for the outgoing calls. Um, it's not accurate for incoming calls. And so the state had used the evidence very, very heavily in their case against Adnan to show that he had been in a certain location at a certain time to fit the timeline that Jay Wilds had given them, yet these incoming call pings were not accurate at all. So, so has everyone here listened to Serial? I have not, but now I know. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, you have. Yeah, it was great. Jeremy. I have not. Yeah? Don't, I, I don't bother with season two, I would say. I think, I think, I think Serial is great. I think, um, yeah, season two, Boat from Go. No. Yeah, I only listened to a couple episodes of that and I gave up. Yeah, but, but Serial season one, amazing. I enjoyed it as just a regular listener, but with the legal aspect, really, I think it kind of got all of, all of the country talking about legal issues, but I thought it was great. I really, that's a, that's a great case. Um, I personally thought after listening to the entire season that he probably did it. That's where I ended up. I was on the fence until like second to last episode, but um, I've talked to people and they're on both sides and the undisclosed seems to be, you know, putting more reasonable doubt in there. Well, one of the craziest things that they uncovered actually was if you listen to the audio of Jay being interviewed by the police officers, they'll ask him a question and he'll kind of fumble around uh, and then you can hear, you can hear taps. And then he'll say things like, oh, okay, da 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 da. And he'll tell a part of the story. And so Susan Simpson was the one that realized that there were these tapping sounds. And so her inference was, the police officers had kind of something written down and they were pointing to him. Uh-huh. This is what, no, this is what you're supposed to be answering here. Um, there was my last fact that was undisclosed by undisclosed. Um, so there was an anonymous tip made. The reward was, I think it was between three and $4,000. Well, Jay Wilds really wanted to buy a motorcycle from the soccer coach at the high school. He was selling it. Um, so the police notes from when they drove around with Jay before they had arrested Adnan, they had written two different styles of motorcycle on their notes, and reward was written in all caps at the top. Um, the anonymous tipster wasn't paid out until after Jay had agreed to testify. He, had, he basically made a deal with the state where they were going to get him an attorney. He wasn't going to serve any jail time as long as he testified against Adnan. And then the tipster was paid out. To this day, nobody knows really truly who the anonymous tipster was, but if it turns out to be Jay, then we have a little bit of a constitutional violation on our hands. We haven't seen any video, any pictures of him on his motorcycle? No, and actually the soccer coach said that he had sold it to somebody else, and I think it had been sold prior to the November 1 payout. But, yeah, it's just a very interesting case, and it's crazy that the the serial podcast is what kicked off this ability to pour these funds because people were just donating, donating, donating to try to help the undisclosed team finance their research. Um, and that's really what turned it around for him. And people are pouring and pouring and pouring money into this podcast <laughs> to keep us going. And if you know, thank you, Warren Buffett, for that 
And if you're thinking of listening to something other than our podcast uh, on this first time, like it sounds like it might be place to go and again, after we, season one of cereal. And again, we thank our sponsor this week, Bobby Bonilla, for his generous donation <laughs> of a million dollars. I mean, his Just big... one year out of 30 years <laughs> <Yeah>. payout, so... <laughs> I got one. Yeah. All right, so not really a case related to uh, the Bill O'Reilly Fox, uh, his, his final contract while he was employed there, and allegedly, according to a Fox executive under oath in a recent deposition... Uh, one of the terms that was in Bill O'Reilly's most recent employment contract said that he could not be terminated for allegations or even proof of sexual harassment, that the only way he could be terminated for sexual harassment was if it was proven in court. And um, allowing someone to completely limit the way that someone's terminated, you have to look at the, the public policy implications of that. Um, it almost encouraged him to, to commit sexual harassment or at least act in a way that would allow him to continue on the way he was acting and not face any repercussions. I mean, the guy was never going to have it proven against him in court. I mean, he's got... When he was always going to settle it, he was right. always just going to pay. Right. right. So that's the question. We're actually dealing with a case right now where we're trying to argue that it's against public policy for someone to completely limit their ability to be terminated for, or an employer's ability to terminate them for a cause, even if good cause exists. So I'm curious kind of what other courts are having to say about terms like that. But when they made the contract, both sides agreed to the terms. Right, so we're looking at parties' freedom to contract. But you can, contracts can be considered void for being against public policy. It also shows that Fox probably knew about his proclivity for, because a lot of times they're saying, they had no idea what O'Reilly was doing. But if you're going to sign a contract with him that says... That's some weird language. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that in there? Oh, it's in everyone's contracts. <laughs> well, actually, Fox, it might be in everyone's contract. <laughs> that, that is a, a great contract um, gift to all of us. Thank you for telling us about how Bill, Bill O'Reilly got around getting fired from Fox. And then he did get fired from Fox before any of it was proved in court. So I know he settled with them, but maybe that was one of the reasons he was able to settle rather than um, just get kicked out on his ass. What's unfortunate in this day and age, we could do like a what scumbag settled what case of the week. Like <laughs> literally, like they've been coming out so fast and furious to be like, all right, which icon that we used to love is now clearly a monster. <laughs> Does anybody have any other cases? I, I got one more. Um, and and it's, it's a serious one, but I... One case that really gets me is the Citizens United case. Um, for those of you, who, for those of you who don't know, this was the case back in 2010 on a 5-4 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that allowed anybody, anything, to be free speech in political speech, no restrictions. Um, it overturned McCain-Feingold that you couldn't do certain ads around election time, you couldn't do certain political speech. Um, Justice Kennedy wrote for the majority, really expanding uh, what free speech is, what the res restrictions lessened, and um, it has brought in super PACs and a lot of money into politics, and I predict that it is the beginning of the end, and we're now seven years down the line, but I think it was really the beginning of the end of, um, of Washington politics working out not too bad. I think it I think it puts us down a spiral to where we're at today and into the future where it's even worse. Um, having all that outside money, Chinese money even, in our politics is very bad. And I am a former fundraiser, so I, I've seen it. I've seen what money can do. And... Uh, it's ugly. So I'm all for public campaign finance. Um, I'm for reform in a big way. And I hope that we break the system enough that everyone comes together and wants campaign finance reform and actually insists on it from their elected officials. So it's kind of, you gotta, it's kind of the Trump, you gotta implode Obamacare to get a better product. I think we're imploding our political system to hopefully create another one another better one if we can 
come together on restrictions on campaign finance. So that's my two cents. It's not necessarily a high note to end on. <laughs> Pretty serious. So we have to destroy our country and we'll build it from the ashes. See you next week at the OBA podcast. <laughs>